welcome to the 12th House Podcast. I'm Michelle Pelazon-Lipsitz, your co-host and the head witch in charge here to Listicism, and I'm so delighted that you're tuning into today's episode. It is such a good one. You're going to get so much out of it. My guest today is Dr. Heather J. Kent. Heather is a registered psychotherapist and a Canadian certified counselor, and she specializes in trauma assessment and treatment, in particular, helping women and non-binary people through the process of ending abusive and toxic relationships, particularly with narcissists. It's a really good episode, guys. <laughs> wow. I put a call out on my personal Instagram just asking for questions and, you know, if there was anything in particular people wanted to know about. And there was a deluge <laughs> of DMs that came into my inbox. And on this podcast, on the 12th House, what we're trying to do is sort of, <laughs> we're trying to like help you self-actualize, right? And like offer you these different tools and tactics and strategies and in people and ways of doing things and like becoming the fullest version of yourself, whatever that means to you. So some might interpret that as mystical productivity. Others might interpret that as sort of aware, personal, spiritual self-development. And still others might kind of understand that as being able to name what we've gone through and experienced so that we can heal it. And I think that that's what you're going to get out of today's episode. I was stunned in this conversation with Heather to learn that so many people who identify as highly sensitive people or highly empathetic or intuitive people are often the victims of those who exhibit narcissistic tendencies. And as someone who's definitely called an ex a narcissist before um, more than once, I'm self-aware enough, I hope, to recognize that like maybe, you know, <laughs> that person wasn't a narcissist and just like was kind of mean to me and I took it personally. But it seems like maybe we've inflated the word or the term narcissist and blown it out of proportion and sort of like correlated it to just someone who's kind of being a dick or a jerk. So I asked Heather about that in today's episode, and you'll hear from her, but long story short, there actually are more narcissists around out there. And if it feels like you're hearing about them a lot, one flag that came up for me was, wow, a lot of my friends are really intuitive, em empathetic, sensitive people, understanding people. And um, maybe there are more narcissists out there in the world. So I think that this episode will be really helpful if you maybe have experienced narcissistic abuse or something similar to it, or maybe you have a question mark over your head around whether you have uh, what you've gone through would be considered, you know, dealing with a narcissist and moving past it and maybe even understanding how those challenging relationships play into how you show up in other parts of your life. That probably is the most surprising thing to me about this episode. So without further ado, I'm going to let you listen to Heather because she's a genius. But this is just the beginning. And I hope that you check out Heather's work. She has two books. I left my toxic relationship. Now what? And her other book is about healing from your narcissistic ex. It's called Heal from Your Narcissistic Ex. Both books are actually free and you can find them on Heather's site. Definitely go check them out. She is wonderful and I can't wait for you to enjoy this conversation. Heather, it's so nice to have you on the 12th house. Welcome. Thank you so much. We are so excited to talk to you and to see... Uh, that you're interested in coming on the podcast because you have an endlessly interesting background, in my opinion. Um, but we always start with a little sort of like warm up, break the ice question. You can sure. take from one of two questions, whichever one you feel more comfortable with, or you can say, 
Pasadena. No, thanks. I don't want to answer either. So the first question is, how many friends do you have? The second question is, how much money do you make? Would you like to answer either question? I don't know that I can accurately answer either of those questions. <laughs> Let me see. How many friends do I have? <laughs> That's very fair. <laughs> like close friends or just in general or... It seems like a really big question. Um, in this country... What country are you in? So I live in Canada, but I have friends um, all over the world, actually. I have close friends in New Zealand and in the UK, and I have. I used to live in the Dominican Republic, so I have many friends there. Um, my sister lives in the US, so I don't know. It's a hard question. Maybe like close friends who I would make a point to go and see. Mm -hmm. 50, maybe? That's a lot. That's a big friend group. Yeah, I mean, I don't talk to them all every day, and they're all <laughs> all over the world, literally, but uh, that's my guess. Wow, how do you keep in contact with that many people? Are you naturally extroverted, would you say? Yes, yes, I am. Yeah, so I, I do make a concerted effort to stay in touch and like pop in and be like, Hey, how's it going? I haven't talked to you in a while. Like, I love that. So you're not the type of person who's like, Oh, I didn't hear a text back from them. Maybe I shouldn't text them. You're just like, Hey, you didn't reply. What's going on? Yeah. I'm like, how are things going? Things must be busy. Or, 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 I'm like equally things are busy for me. So I might not, not, not also get back to you immediately either. Um, yeah. but when I think of it, I'm like, Oh, I wonder how that person's doing. Let me send a message because otherwise I won't do it and I'll forget. And like get into a spiral of overthinking too of like, well, should I get back to them? Should I not? Maybe I should wait till a better time. Maybe this will be annoying. I feel like you have to be pretty confident in yourself and under also empathetic and understanding of other people to be like, it's all good if they don't get back to me or not. That's a really good point. One of my closest friends, like super close friends, she's very introverted. So actually I would say my two closest friends are both very introverted. And so because wow. of that, I am like acutely aware that if I want to talk to them, <laughs> I have to reach out to them. It's on you. <laughs> yes. If I want to see them, I have to say, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Let's get together. <laughs> and it's not that they don't want to see me. It's just that they are naturally inclined to do nothing like outside of what they normally would be doing. And so it isn't a matter of them not wanting to see me or not wanting to talk to me or not wanting to do X, Y, Z things. It is just a matter of them having a much easier time saying, oh yeah, that sounds great. Like, where should we go? Kind of thing. Um, versus them having to take the time to think about what to do and that, that they, feels very stressful for them. Mm -hmm. So to not take that personally and to just recognize that this is sort of their resting state and that's how they operate and then it's all good. So having introverted friends that are really close to me taught me, I think quite early on that we don't need to overthink things that sometimes you just are more, more extroverted or introverted and you have, there's, there's balance there. Right. Right. And I think once you capture an introvert, you know, once you get them, yeah. they are like all eyes on you, right? They're, they're like so present and they're giving you attention and. Oh my gosh, they're my favorite humans. They're my favorite people. There's a reason why they're my closest friends. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a matter of like, you know, t like tempting them out with a cookie, you know, you're like, come on, it'll be fun. I promise. <laughs> Absolutely. And actually my, my friend in New Zealand is, is super introverted too. And I used to, we make fun, we joke about how I was always like banging on her door. I'm like, come on, let's go. 
Come on, get your shoes on. <laughs> As an introvert, I really, myself, I really appreciate my friends who are like that and who understand and who kind of just are like, we're doing this thing. I know you don't want to go, but you're going to like it once you get there. I promise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, okay. And then I'm like, okay, I'll leave you alone for the next three days. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have to go hibernate now. <laughs> Well, I love like when people want to answer that question about friends, because I find that so many people who are creative or who are entrepreneurial, you know, kind of like forging their own path. The friend thing is really hard or the community, the community element can be really challenging Mm -hmm. because it can be really isolating and lonely. And you've written a bunch of books. The writing process is a lonely process. I would say. And it's hard for a lot of people to understand or relate to like, well, why can't you just get lunch in the middle of the day aren't you just writing a book uh don't you or don't you run your own schedule what has that kind of been like for you because how long have, would you say you've been on this sort of alternative path so I've kind of been on and off a little bit so because COVID was weird and I think that's- <laughs> yeah COVID for basically two years of like everyone's on an alternative path now yeah like it really yeah I started working kind of in a private practice setting in 2017 yeah. So that was, and I did, um, I offered animal assisted therapy at that time as well. Um, mm-hmm. so I used to have a dog in my practice with my clients. So that was really different and fun. Um, people yeah. really enjoyed that. So yeah, I guess it's been five years. And how did that transition feel for you? Did you feel like you sort of like lost some of your friends or it was difficult to maintain, you know, building up your practice and your own work and your relationships? Yeah. I mean, for sure at the beginning, there was this concept of just like working a lot, mm-hmm. but then when we, I worked in a group practice, so I became friendly with the other therapists that I worked with. And so like naturally we would maybe spend time together after work or outside yeah. of work or like do things and travel and whatever. So your colleagues in that kind of context, if you're sharing office space with people, you get that kind of social connection, I guess, and they're like-minded because they're doing the same work that you're doing and all yeah. that. So yeah, I, found, I didn't find it too difficult in terms of like staying connected, but again, I don't live where all of my friends are. So I normally wouldn't see people mm-hmm. on a regular basis that I'm, that I care about because I don't live in the same place as most of them. Right. So it really is just a matter of like checking in, like social media is really helpful with that. And like, you know, FaceTime and all these like messaging apps and whatever makes it a lot easier. Yeah. You probably already had some great sort of like coping skills and tools for maintaining your relationships. So you were well prepared. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just the, like, I wonder how they are. I should ask. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You're following your intuition. I'm curious yeah. for the other people in your practice or for you, how did you get down this path of, of really like becoming an expert in narcissistic abuse or dealing with narcissists? So I am a survivor myself, actually, of narcissistic abuse and being in an abusive relationship of that nature. So certainly when I was in it, I didn't know that's what it was. And I didn't know that I had PTSD after it. Uh, And so having gone through that sort of healing journey myself, I appreciated this support and information expertise that I would have really benefited from when I was going through that time. And then when I started my practice, when I started seeing private clients in 2017, 
in an office in a town, like not very big, outside mm-hmm. of Toronto, I was shocked to see how many people were coming into my pro- into my office, just randomly booking appointments with me. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that this is what they were also dealing with, men wow. and women. Yeah. Do you think that's like a, a couple things? Do you think that a certain, a specific type of person who maybe is attracted to you or is like you, identifies with you is more likely to experience narcissistic abuse? Or do you think narcissists are just, there's a proliferation of narcissists because of the way the world is right now? Yes, to both. (laughs) 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 So for the first question, yes, the narcissistic people, um, people with those types of sort of sociopathic personality disorders, they search people out who are highly empathic, who are excellent at forgiveness, who are extremely loyal, who maybe have some trauma history or maybe have a totally beautiful, sunny rainbow childhood and and upbringing who are naive to such things. Mm -hmm. The thing that they really search for is people who are very, very empathetic, people who are excellent at forgiveness and people who are very, very loyal. Wow. Yeah. And so... These are all wonderful qualities to have, but they also make us more vulnerable to being uh, manipulated by these people. Hmm. I think so many people who are identify as spiritual or who are into like wellness and healing probably fall on that on 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 actually both sides of the spectrum, right? Narcissists, but also highly empathic, probably yeah. very intuitive, maybe even like highly sensitive. Oh yeah. So highly sensitive people are really susceptible again because they're all in with whatever it is with that that they're into, right? So when they commit to a relationship, like they'll do whatever they can to make it work kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's really challenging when we don't have an awareness that we might be more susceptible to their kind of behavior and ma- manipulation tactics. Do you think people who sort of fall prey to narcissists are tend to be more sort of like perfectionistic or maybe even like codependent sort of high achiever? Codependent behavior develops from the abusive relationships. It may or may not be present previously. Certainly, if you have a history of narcissistic abuse, say with a parent or a previous relationship, codependent behaviors or like insecure attachment behaviors would already be there. But you can be perfectly securely attached in the beginning, but as a result of the manipulation, you become codependent and you develop like this trauma bond, which makes it really hard to get away from the person and to break things off. Yeah. I remember the first time I met my therapist, she was like, yeah, you sound codependent. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm so, I'm the most independent person I know. <laughs> and then I Googled what codependent was and I was like, oh, that, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, then, look at those traits. Okay. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> there's a really, um, there's a book called Codependent No More by Melody B. Yeah. yeah. And it had in the, one of the chapters, it just has this like pages and pages of lists of like personality traits of codependent Mm -hmm. behaviors. And you go through it, you're like, huh? Yeah. Okay. This is my diary. What's going on? Okay. um, I'm going to need to read the rest of this book. Yeah. I'm so curious, you know, how, if at all, does perfectionism or symptoms of perfectionism sort of relate to being seen or showing up in different areas of our lives? And like, you know, part two of this question is how might this like maybe the trauma that we've experienced if we've been in a narcissistic relationship or experienced narcissistic abuse, how might that show up for us when it comes to like being seen at work or on social media or for something that we really care about? 
So I'm just trying to connect the two questions together. So how does perfectionism impact our ability to be seen as survivors of narcissistic abuse? Yeah, if we have some PTSD uh, from or if we have some trauma from Mm -hmm. experiencing narcissistic abuse or a narcissistic relationship, how does that impact our ability to maybe be seen? I would imagine like perfectionism might be a way where we like just want to look perfect, but how else might it sort of prevent us from, you know? I actually think that the impact of this type of psychological and emotional abuse has the opposite effect. It actually makes us terrified to, to be seen. And we do not want to draw attention to ourselves. We have very low self-worth, very low self-esteem belief that you are not enough And that it's not possible because you have been programmed to believe those things about yourself over time. And so with the abuse comes this slow, very insidious degradation of of your self-worth and self-concept and confidence. That makes me so sad. That makes me like, just you saying that makes me want to cry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like I can only imagine also... I mean, how long would something like that take? How might how long might it take for you to go from someone who feels really secure and confident to terrified to be witnessed? It doesn't take long. They're very good at what they do. So, you know, depending on the intensity of the relationships, which are usually highly intense, especially right. at the beginning, um, the damage can be done in a few months. And then... I've also, I mean, I've experienced, yeah, clients who have been in a situation for a year, less than a year, and then clients who have been sustaining the abuse for like 20, 25 years before they exit. Yeah. And it's really, really damaging. And the impact, whether it's one year or 20 years, the impact is no less significant. Basically, you might be able to recover from it more quickly if it's been a shorter period of time. However, initially the impact is, is very damaging. Yeah. How do you begin to heal? I think about people who are raised by narcissistic parents where all they've known is that, right? Yeah. And you know, it's really the family dynamics, the family dynamics piece is really challenging because, um, depending on the, it's like a system, right? And so depending on the type of narcissistic parent, they would behave in certain ways with the children. And if there's more than one child, each child is kind of takes on a different role within this sort of system, this this dysfunctional system. Um, And so the children can have a predisposition to themselves becoming narcissistic as well, or they have, again, this really like insecure attachment style and live their lives wondering why they're not enough because they've never been enough. They're not seen by their parents. They're labeled as a problem. They're labeled as the troublemaker. They're labeled as whatever. And no matter what they do, it's wrong. It's not good enough. It's whatever. And so those children live their lives feeling like they're not enough. Wow. I could see how that could push you in one or the other direction, right? Yeah. To either like total narcissist. And can you talk a little bit about, because we had a ton of questions. Um, a lot of people who had experienced narcissist, like, you know, narcissistic abuse who were like, are they just evil and dead inside? Obviously you can speak to this, but it sounds like that's, it's a trait that can de- be developed. And is it true? I've heard that, you know, like BPD and narcissism are sort of next to each other. Very adjacent. Yeah. Very, very adjacent. And that can come from abuse in childhood, right? Or the difference between borderline personality and a narcissistic personality disorder would be the empathy piece. 
So a person who has been diagnosed with a borderline personality disorder is capable of feeling bad for other people or understanding how other people feel. And then if they're the ones that cause the pain, well, that just causes them to to crumble, right? They can't handle it, but they can see it and it impacts them and they feel it and they don't, they don't want to necessarily harm their loved ones, but they can't help it. Right. So it's complex the way that it shows up. The the behaviors are really similar in a lot of ways, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the lack of empathy on the narcissistic personality side as the, Mm. as the sort of key differentiating factor. Are they on like a spectrum of development basically? Got it. Okay. So like the first stop would be BPD and then... Oh, no, no, no. Not necessarily. But like, it's a spectrum of severity, shall we say. Got it. So you can be like mildly narcissistic and like extreme. Um, And then then along that spectrum, there's like sort of different subtypes of narcissistic personality styles, basically. Mm -hmm. And so the most common one that we see that is portrayed in media most often that we might see, you know, for example, in recent history of world leaders would be... (laughs) This very grandiose, overt, look at me, I'm amazing, me, me, right? And like... Also influencers in social media, I I think probably plays a lot into that. Yeah. And so this is called a grandiose narcissist. And so they're very overt. They, they, They love the spotlight. They desperately crave the attention and the validation. And I want to be in the center of attention all the time. And they are very delusional and actually report high levels of satisfaction and happiness because they think that everything is fine and everyone loves them. It must be nice. (laughs) Even though their partners are secretly plotting their deaths. Yeah. (laughs) But they're just like, no, everything's great because I'm fantastic, you know? And so that's what we see a lot portrayed. And, but that there are many other types of narcissistic personalities that do not fit that profile. And so that's, I think, what confuses people and it makes it hard for people to recognize because it's not just the really in your face kind, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think covert narcissism uh, as a buzzword is having a moment as well because I think a lot of people are experiencing it. Yeah. And so it's interesting, a covert narcissistic personality actually hates the spotlight does not want to attract attention because they are so desperately terrified of criticism from the outside. That sounds really similar to someone who's experienced narcissistic abuse. Yeah. I mean, the the criticism from the outside kind of goes against this like facade of like, everything's great. I'm normal. Everything's like that because everything has to look wonderful, right? You have to have a nice house. You have to have the car. You have to have the clothes. You have to have, you have to present, you have to have the partner who, you know, presents well. Everything has to look good. And because we can't have criticism, because as soon as we have criticism, then our like charade crumbles internally. And so they have a very, very fragile like self-esteem and like their ego is very, very, very sensitive. And so when, when anything challenges this like false sense of self that they created, then they can't handle it. So a covert narcissist actually avoids drawing attention because they don't want external criticism. They report high levels of anxiety, high levels of depression. They're, they don't have friends and they like ruminate a lot and are like internally like jealous and envious of others and compare themselves to others and that kind of thing. Wow. I know that there's probably a bunch of people listening who are like, am I a covert nurse? (laughs) (laughs) 
again, it goes back to the empathy piece. So like we all have narcissistic tendencies <laughs> yeah. um, at different points in our lives and in different situations, certainly. Um, if you look at a small child or like an angsty teenager, the world revolves around them and their brain, right? And that's just part of development. But as we grow and understand our sense of self as it relates to the world, our worldview and our view of ourselves in the world changes, right? And so for narcissistic personalities, that just kind of doesn't happen. They stay self-centered. I'm really curious. I didn't know that you had worked with animals in your practice. Yeah. And I imagine that, you know, trauma obviously gets stored in the body as well as in the consciousness, right? Yes. And I imagine that your work with animal therapy does something to help a sort of somatic release when it comes to trauma Absolutely. that's coming up. Can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe how that might show up for people who have experienced narcissistic abuse? Hello, hello. I am coming to you in the middle of this incredible conversation with Michelle and Dr. Heather Kent to let you know that we have a System Spells Notion for Magical Baddies class coming up in the second week of December, and Janelle and I are going to be hosting. Michelle, who is our wonderful teacher, head witch in charge, is off on maternity leave, and Janelle and I are going to be hosting this round of System Spells. It's going to be a really, really fun time. It's an amazing way to take a breather before the crazy holiday season and organize your year ahead take some time out of your day to prep and plan, but also a really nice excuse to take time away for yourself to check in and see what systems in your life are working and what systems need a little bit of a refresh. System Spells is one of our courses in the Notion for Magical Bodies universe where we teach all different frameworks for getting every single aspect of your life organized. So whether you're a creative or you're a small business owner or a solopreneur, or a squiggly-brained person of any kind who struggles to finish projects, whether they're creative, household, personal, or work-based, this is the course where we will help you figure out exactly what's wrong with the systems you're using and how to fix them and make them work for you. Because nobody likes to use systems that are designed for non-squiggly-brained intuitive people and try and force themselves into a box and use those. And that's why we designed this course exactly for people like us. It's paced in a way where we'll do teaching and then implementation every class. We'll also have office hours. And we're running this from Tuesday to Friday from December 6th to the 9th. And it's a great way to really build on learning each day and also implementation of all of the frameworks and skills that you learn in class each day. So if you're not really sure if this is right for you, we're going to be hosting two free workshops on Thursday and Friday, December 1st and 2nd, going through how to use a second brain and how to use Monday hour one as a framework for starting your weeks. So if you're curious about either of those, the links to those workshops are in the show notes as well. And those are free. Everything will be with Janelle and I, and it'll be honestly a good time. <laughs> so even if you want to just come and hang out and you're curious about what it's all about, we will see you on there on December 1st and 2nd. Okay. I'll let you get back into the episode. 
Yeah, so animal-assisted therapy is highly researched, and there's lots of like um, empirical evidence supporting its validity and all of that, and especially in the last 30 years. So being able to offer animal-assisted therapy you know, in my practice for survivors of trauma and PTSD was and has been extremely just wonderful to see because I do, I had, did have clients and like they would come in so just physically in pain and overwhelmed and they would come in and just sit with the dog and he would just put his weight on them and immediately their pain would dissipate. Like the physical pain, the headaches, the, the like wow. the tingling down their arms would disappear. Yeah. It was really amazing. And he used to be able to, this is my previous aunt and dog that worked with me. He used to just be able to kind of scan the room. And like, if he felt like somebody was off, he would go and like sit in front of you and just like gently place his head on your lap and like press down. (laughs) Oh my God. I have my dog in the room with me right now. So I'm, uh, that's melting my heart. Oh my God. Yeah. They're so they're so intelligent. They really are. And um, actually in terms of healing from abusive relationships, starting with a an animal as a trusting relationship is a really helpful way to sort of develop confidence in another living being again. And so the thing about animals that's different from humans is that animals offer unconditional love, right? And they don't have judgment and they don't care about yesterday and they don't care about how you're dressed or whether you were on time, right? They don't care about any of that. And so being able to develop a positive and have a positive experience with an animal is much less threatening to a person than trusting a human. And so this is where equine therapy comes in as well. Um, So like horse therapy is huge again, because their intelligence and then dolphins is another one as well as dogs. They're the most common. You know, it's kind of like a a trope or a meme that when you go through a horrible breakup, you adopt a dog. Right. And I mean, maybe that's some sort of like unconscious. Yeah. You're, you're, you're trying to heal yourself. Yeah. And, you know, being able to develop a trusting relationship with an animal is sort of the positive sort of stepping stone to then, okay, maybe I can trust other people who have animals, <laughs> like, you know, through <laughs> <Right. laughs> the transitive property, right? Like, okay, yeah. if a dog trusts that person, they must be a good person. So. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that could be something, well, maybe we can do like dog excursions and like whatever. And so you can kind of ease into interacting with others and meeting new people through the animals that you have in yeah. your life. And so, yeah, animals have been, like I said, validated and proven to be exponentially helpful in, in healing from PTSD. Wow. And I'm kind of still stuck on the fact that potentially a lot of symptoms or somatic side effects or pain that people experience is maybe from trauma. Oh, absolutely. So when you can't escape like a chronic traumatic situation. So if we think about a soldier in a war zone or an abusive relationship, you can't escape, right? So our natural reaction when we feel like danger is to run or to hide or, you know, right? Or to fight. Mm. When you can't do either of those things and you're just kind of frozen and stuck there, it all kind of gets absorbed in in your cells, into your body. Mm. And so it's trapped in there and there you need to find ways to release it and, and process through it and get and get it out and kind of reclaim your body as well because some people's trauma has related to physical or sexual assault. Mm. And so 
that body work is so important because you want to kind of reclaim ownership over your body in some cases, right? And so that's where things like trauma-informed yoga and the, these types of very like gentle movement practices can be mm-hmm. really powerful, um, yeah. really beneficial. And absolutely, like having the physical touch of an animal or you know other sensory things that provide comfort and safety, it's really all about getting us back to a feeling of safety. You're making me kind of solidify a connection. I was diagnosed with epilepsy when I was 17. I just started having these crazy seizures and um, they couldn't figure out, you know, anatomically if anything was wrong with me. It looked, my brain looked pretty normal and I ended up going to school. I was a professional dancer. So part of my training was Alexander technique, a lot of somatic work and release work and like basically a lot of therapy (laughs) and uh, my seizures started to go away as I got sort of more comfortable in my body. And I also noticed that I had, when I really like laid on the ground and just had to check in with my body, I had so much pain that I didn't Mm -hmm. realize, like literal physical pain that I didn't realize. And I'd have to do that, you know, for two hours every morning, just lay on the ground and move Mm -hmm. one finger at a time. And my seizures eventually went away after doing a lot of that type of work, but it's really making me you know, remember that those somatic, like somatic experiencing just in and of itself, being in your body and being reminded that you have a body is so powerful. It doesn't have to be some deep, intensive practice. No, absolutely. And um, I've done a lot of trauma focused, like training on like sensory motor psychotherapy. And I did the um, somatic experiencing training as well, specifically like as a clinician. So yeah, these are absolutely awareness pieces that our modern society is just not programming us to, <laughs> to be good at because it's all about the race and how many hours you can clock and productivity and output and work and this, that, and the other. And especially as women, there's also that added pressure and expectation of being a perfect mom and having a great house and a cook and whatever. So, And the fear of like, well, if I open something up, like let's say I go down this path of feeling, (laughs) will I ever be able to like close it back up? Opening Pandora's box is a huge consideration for people. Absolutely. But I have only met one person who has ever said that they wish that they never started working on their mental health. And that person actually is a, is a narcissist. So (laughs) getting cut. (laughs) Do narcissists often like, do they know that they're narcissists often? Some of them do. Some of them, even if you told them they would blame you, they would tell you that you're the narcissist. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, we had a bunch of questions about navigating family dynamics when there's a narcissist in the family. Love these questions. Love these. And um, (laughs) one in particular was like, do you confront? You know, do you confront the narcissist in your family? What is the best way to sort of deal with it? Confronting them will never get you the outcome that you are looking for because they are not capable of admitting that a they have a flaw and b that they are somehow responsible for the problem. Right. right. And they're not going to change, right? It will they, never happen. I mean, it is highly unlikely. Again, I have worked with two narcissists in my practice, only two, um, wow. because they don't want to do the work and they don't want to recognize that that's what they're dealing with. Right. So right. the ones that want to change, it's a, it's a long, slow process. But yeah, if you're dealing with someone in your family uh, dynamic or in your, within your family system, no, confronting them about being a narcissist it does not go well. It will never, ever go well. Right. And so the best kind of strategy is to avoid contact as much as possible. 
we use like a, a term called gray rock. And so you just, if you're not able to completely cut off contact, then you just kind of minimize your interactions to business only mm-hmm. and, you know, interact as needed only and engage maybe at larger family gatherings at a minimum and kind of keep your distance because it's never going to go the way you would like it to go. And I know the closure would be really nice, but that requires an awareness and an acceptance of responsibility on the other person's part. Yeah. I love the flat gray rock. When I learned that, I was like, wow, (laughs) this way, this really helps. (laughs) I can cut the drama out by not engaging like period. And, and the family members love to push the buttons and they love to poke and they love because they want the fight. They need it. They need it to validate their own experience and their existence. They need the supply that you offer, whether it's positive or negative, doesn't matter. They just want it. They want to engage. They don't want to be obsolete. And so if you don't, you know, provide oxygen to the flames, eventually it goes out. And that I imagine also can be a little triggering for the person who has experienced the abuse because now this person who was obsessed with you and who fawned over you is no longer giving you any attention, positive or negative. Yeah. And I mean, and again, it can go back to like, if it's a parent situation, like what did I do wrong? Why, why did they hate me? And it has nothing to do with you, with you, the child. It has everything to do with the deficit of the parent or the, or the narcissistic personality, right? It has to do with their internal self-loathing. There is another question about, is it possible to ever be in a loving, you know, healthy relationship with a narcissist? No. <laughs> it's like, well, sorry, friend. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I hard no. Those are the most like opposed, the, the two most opposed <laughs> words in a sentence you could have. Loving, caring relationship and narcissist. No, they, these are not synonymous. Absolutely not. It is not possible because they don't understand what any of that means. Right. It's all, it must all be on you, right? If they are opportunistic, yeah. they will look at everything as how they can win or what mm-hmm. they can gain from any interaction. Or how it makes them look good. Even in a conversation, everything is in the light, win, the light, the light of winning or losing. And so like, how do I win the conversation? How do I win this interaction? How do I come out on top? Wow. That's so interesting. And I think probably a lot of people, again, who are, who are listening to this podcast can relate to wanting to look good, right? And like hoping to look good or be good. Oh, of course. You know, we want to always present our best selves, you know, when we're meeting new people or engaged in public activities, of course. But that's not to say that you're not being authentic. Right. <laughs> you're, just, right. you're just holding back parts of things that don't need to be shared in those situations, right? Especially if we've been told that we're bad, right? That our whole lives yeah. or that there's something wrong with us, then we want to be good. We want to prove to ourselves and everyone else around us that we are good. Yeah. So we also develop people-pleasing tendencies. So people who are already programmed to be people-pleasers are, again, those more vulnerable and susceptible to this type of um, manipulation. Yeah. So for sure, like, hi, my name is Heather. I'm a recovery people pleaser. Nice to meet you. Um, <laughs> learning that we don't have to be responsible and that we actually are not responsible for how other people feel, um, that we are only responsible for our own feelings is really important. That's so hard though. That is so hard. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It takes a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Something that I have to repeat to myself a lot is I cannot control how other people decide to perceive me and I cannot control how other people decide to think about me. Like no matter how good I am, no matter how perfect I try to be, they're still going to think whatever they want to think. And that's so hard. And whatever they think actually doesn't really have anything to do with you. 
in the end. It has to do with their own inner perceptions and struggles, Mm -hmm. right? And so how they perceive you has nothing to do with what you did or didn't do. Right. And balancing that with empathy <laughs> and also like, oh, I, I do, I do want people to like me, you know, like I, I want to be a likable person. I want to be an enjoyable person. Oh, that's, of course. That's the human experience. <laughs> it's fairly easy to be a likable person if you don't go around like telling people off and punch people in the face. <laughs> like it's pretty easy to be a likable person. <laughs> I don't know, it seems pretty hard for a lot of people these days. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. Uh, Heather, I could seriously talk to you for hours because you are delight. You're very likable. Likewise. <laughs> My last question would just be, if you could whisper anything to your past self, what would you say? Don't be afraid. You can do it. It's way better on the other side. Mm, she's right. And you're not alone. You are not alone. Oh my gosh. I think that this episode will be so, that will be so healing for so many people to hear because it can be very isolating. You can feel crazy when you've been abused by a narcissist. Absolutely. I I run small like recovery groups for survivors, for narcissistic abuse specifically. And there's always a little bit of trepidation of of like, like joining in a, in a, in a group environment, like a therapy group. But what I tell everyone is that what you are gaining is is a totally non-judgmental community of other human beings who completely understand your experience because they themselves have lived through the same thing. It might have a different flavor, make it look a little bit different, but the impact and what they're going through and their desire to heal is the same. And so you don't have to worry about people thinking that you're crazy or that you're making it up or that that never happened. Or that you're stupid or that you're weak or something like that. Yeah, because everyone else there also went through it, myself included, right? And so at the end of the the sessions, everyone is is actually like quite upset that it's over and they want to stay in touch and whatever. Hey, did we just become best friends? So, <laughs> hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it is really lovely to see because for the, sometimes for the very first time, their experience is being validated, you know, on mass, right. And even the group isn't very big, but it's still like these people become really important as a, you know, component of the healing process and creating community and support. Right. And if you've been with a narcissist or you're in relationship with a narcissist, invalidating your experience is all of it, right? Oh my goodness. And isolating you from your supports, right? They'll, they'll do and say things to make you think that you shouldn't spend time with your family or your friends or that your friends are bad for some reason. And they're, you know, under the guise of looking out for you. They don't want you to, you know, spend time with these people, whatever. So in the end of it, you can feel very alone. And so my younger self message and to many people listening is that you are absolutely not alone and that help exists. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you're here to help. So thank you for doing this. Absolutely. <laughs> um, how can people find you and, and pick up, what are you working on right now? Well, they can certainly download my books for free. So I have both of my books available in a, like a PDF version on my website. So they can find me over at heatherjkent.com. So it's just my name, heatherjkent.com. And you can download my books there. You can also book if people feel like Wow, I really want to, you know, talk more, connect. Um, you can book a consultation call with me directly from my website as well, and uh, and that's free. Amazing. And you work with everyone, uh, so it's more like coaching, not like um, psychotherapy. 
It's well, I mean, both really, because the the PTSD PTSD or like trauma recovery impact mm-hmm. would be clinical and therapy, and you know, it is therapy based. Um, but yeah, the narcissism part is more like yeah, like an awareness and education piece for sure. But the the traumatic work is is psycho psychotherapy in so nature. There's no yeah. like, if I'm in California, I can't talk to you because we're in a different state or something like that. Oh, so in terms of like, no, you still could. Um, it's just that it might not, it likely wouldn't be like processable through your insurance, that kind of thing. So I have had clients, many in the US, a few in the UK, one in Australia. Yeah. Narcissists are everywhere, man. <laughs> they really are. Yeah. And so, but certainly if like coverage is, was a consideration, I would be able to provide a list of other therapists who are doing this work in that area as well. Well, thank you so much. This was so informative. Again, I feel like we're going to have to have you back on. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. That's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to the 12th House podcast. If you enjoyed this or got any value out of it, it would be so amazing if you could share with a friend. You know, we make this podcast for free and we love making it and making it even better for you. And the more the more shares it gets, the more listens it gets, um, the more incredible guests we can we can have on the pod people like Heather and more. So if you liked this, please share it on your stories or with a friend who might get something valuable out of it. Who knows? You could maybe change someone's life by sending them this podcast episode, um, this one in particular. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you've gotten some value out of it, we would be so grateful if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts and if you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple. Or if you want to give us five stars on Spotify, we love that too. All of the above is so appreciated and we are just so grateful that you tune in every week. So thanks for being part of the 12th House community and I will see you next week. Okay, bye. The 12th House is produced by yours truly, Wallace Miller Blanchard. Our theme music is made by Nathan McKay and our wonderful editing is done by Softer Sound Studios who you can find more information about in our show notes.